This is the Inside is Capital podcast. Stephen Lingard is Senior Vice President and Portfolio Manager at Franklin Templeton Managed Solutions. The views expressed in this podcast are those of Stephen Lingard and of the Franklin Templeton Managed Solutions Group. Stephen, what I thought we would do is talk about your outlook for 2018 at um you've recently provided, which was uh, managing volatility through portfolio construction. List. your notes on volatility. I thought we would have a, a discussion about, about that and your views on multi-asset. And then I, I had a question that I wanted to ask you about dispersion. There's been a lot of complacency in the market, and investors might be at the stage where they might actually believe that trees grow to the sky, and uh, the markets have been serene. You know, they've been really disruption-free. There hasn't been a correction in the market for now over a year. There hasn't been a correction of greater than 3% for as long as, as almost, uh, what, 12 and a half, 13 months. Is that correct? The volatility environment, I think it's been, you know, very, very low, as indicated by VIX. Even if you see a pop in VIX, it tends to get, um, you know, sold, and, and you have volatility continuing lower. I think in our mind that would be in part, you know, investor complacency, but also, reflective of the very low economic volatility environment that we're in as well. So it's kind of in part fundamental and part, you know, potentially complacency. Yeah, in your in your outlook you 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 say that during 2017 volatility volatility has been low uh, in both right stock and bond markets as well as the economy in terms of macroeconomic activity. And one of the examples that you cite here is the shape of the yield curve. You know, I think a lot of people are looking at the shape of the yield curve. Historically, it's been a pretty uh, good indicator, not a perfect indicator, but a good indicator for, um, you know, the turn the turn in the cycle, um, i.e. recession. So when short rates get pushed up higher than sort of long rates, that, that tends to portend to an economic slowdown that clearly everyone is – uh, wants to position for ahead of time, <laughs> um, naturally, because you get, you know, a significant rotation in, in asset prices, um, you know, in particular bonds that have enjoyed, you know, a nine-year bull market almost interrupted and nearly worry-free, um, you know, we'll, we'll certainly see some downside. Um, so I think investors are, are clearly watching the yield curve, but there's a few things that are going on that make it maybe a less uh, you know, useful indicator than in years past. I think, you know, obviously the short end has been anchored by ultra easy monetary policy that uh, is in the process of changing. So the Fed has now raised hike, uh, raised interest rates uh, four times uh, and is uh, winding down its balance sheet. So monetary policy is becoming incrementally, uh, let's say, less loose, but I wouldn't really call it a tremendous tightening. Um, so normally that pushes up the front end of the yield curve, which flattens the yield curve. Um, and, and again, people are looking at that um, as an indicator the cycle may be ending. But, you know, I think the other thing that's holding the yield curve down and flat is the, is the long end. Um, you know, there's something called term premium. So basically the long end is really driven by inflation and also investor behavior. Um, so there's, you know, there's obviously a lot of investors invested in the medium and long part of the yield curve um, that aren't there in a normal cycle when you don't have central bank um, monetary policy. So obviously I think there's about $14 trillion or something of that 
um, magnitude in central bank uh, buying of, of the various yield curves around the world, in particular, you know, uh, the Fed, obviously, the ECB, but the BOJ, some of the largest central banks in the world. So that, uh, combined with a distinct lack of inflation, has kept the yield curve very, very flat. Um, and I think, you know, the cyclicality of inflation, because it really hasn't been around, has led to that low volatility environment um, that, you know, I think looks like complacency, but also, you know, is is just very low economic volatility, uh, including, you know, growth, but also inflation. So, you know, the yield curve for us uh, is interesting. I think it represents an opportunity. Um, you know, we do think the volatility picks up next year as central banks begin to move away from this ultra-orthodox, you know, unorthodox monetary policy, uh, and the yield curve begins to have some more volatility as, as big investors sort of move away. Now, you know, the Fed does that initially. I still think the ECB uh, is, is, you know, expanding their balance sheet right up through the end of uh, you know, the third quarter of next year is kind of where they're on record. The BOJ probably continues for all of next year. But, you know, the first of the big central banks are clearly in, you know, reverse mode for monetary policy, and that's likely to, to impact the yield curve, which which is likely to impact volatility, which will then have knock-on effects to things like currencies, um, but also, um, you know, equities and, and bonds, et cetera. Um, and the way, you know, through equities, obviously, you know, multiples are very high. So when inflation is low and cash flows are fairly certain and we've seen, you know, uninterrupted growth as for the most part for nine years, you know, investors can really push up those multiples um, that they pay for, for future cash flows and, and in the case of stocks, you know, earnings and dividends and, and shareholder buybacks, et cetera. Um, but as volatility increases, historically at least, that multiple will, will come down because there's more uncertainty around those cash flows um, going forward. So, so that's why, you know, in our outlook, I think we, you know, we still see the cycle as being positive. So we still see growth. We don't see risk of a recession in 2018. But if you get more volatility on the yield curve, if you get more volatility overall, that's likely to at least hold back the valuation component of, um, you know, stock returns. Um, just, you know, by way of a reminder, as you know, I'm sure you know, obviously, you know, stocks move on valuation and also the fundamentals, so, so the earnings and cash flows. Those, you know, the earnings and cash flows look pretty solid next year. They'll come off, they'll probably come off a high because of sort of the base effect that we had from the lows last year. But I, I think we see them as pretty solid globally. Um, but again, it's that multiple, can that uh, ever expand? Um, you know, last year it was earnings plus a bit of multiple expansion. This year you'll probably have the earnings component, but, but perhaps a flat multiple, potentially a multiple that's actually lower, which means that, you know, in our mind it could be not quite as good a year as, as last year in terms of risky asset returns because, because of volatility and how that sort of plays out through, um, yeah, you know, the, uh, the valuations, particularly in the equity, but also in credit markets. Stephen, would you would you say that that I mean I, it, it sounds as correct me if I'm wrong, please, but I, it sounds like the sums that we're talking about in the bond market in terms of the 14 trillion dollars that is being held by central banks um, that's keeping yields uh, at the long end uh, quite low, 
that is it's a staggering amount of money first of all it's a staggering amount of of uh of central bank intervention and it's taken a very long it's taken a decade to get there um and would you say that i mean I, it sounds like what you're saying is that the tail effect of this monetary policy is remains very accommodative still it's going to take some time to gradually unwind i do think that you know they're being careful and and making sure that they don't just sort of pull the rug from under the market i mean clearly they want a wealth effect they also want this normalization to happen without a huge dramatic spike in volatility because um you know as i mentioned um you know the valuation is a key part to um you know why risky assets can continue to have a tailwind if you suddenly have a very um non-transparent or aggressive withdrawal of liquidity i think that's where that gets expressed even if the overall earnings and economic environment you know continue to be supportive of stocks and risky assets i think um you know a big spike in volatility if if the vix went to 20 or 25 would certainly play out through uh, a lot of financial um instrument financial market volatility that um you know central banks are are not uh, are very aware of and want to avoid so i i think it's going to be a very well telegraphed and uh, orderly uh withdrawal of of liquidity over time and i think it makes sense that the fed was sort of driving uh the world uh world growth it was sort of the lead locomotive uh, i think um it, it makes sense that they would be sort of withdrawing that liquidity uh initially followed by you know some of the other lagging economies notably uh ECB and or you know Europe and the Bank of Japan you know lagging in terms of timing actually you know Europe has has I think uh, outgrown the US up until the recent quarter for the last couple of years um but certainly in in terms of time you know the Fed has been you know raising interest rates really since the end of 15 so they've been very very uh slow in reducing the accommodation so um but nonetheless i i still i still think we think that volatility goes up but it's a difference of you know it's a matter of magnitude you know if volatility pops into the teens for say the vix i think the market can still manage to climb higher but you don't want a doubling or tripling of the vix which would i think really upset some of this you know nascent recovery that we've seen uh in the global cycle and your sense of volatility returning it's not a matter of if it's a matter of, it's more a matter of when and yes. you, you yes and and what you're what you're stressing here in your outlook is that it makes sense to prepare for that eventuality i think so yeah you want to be early on on these things um because they can be asymmetric um and what we mean by that is you know they can you know the the cycle is very long so you you can earn uh, you know a little bit on playing momentum until the the game or the regime changes and then you know you can typically lose a lot and you know there's there's a number of different assets that we worry about um you know losing a lot on in a short time period um you know duration instruments are, are certainly among those because 
you know, one of the areas of complacency that we've seen. A lot of people think about complacency just as, well, you own risky, higher returning assets, and, you know, it's been a long cycle, so that's where the complacency is. But, you know, I'd argue there's as much complacency in, in conservative instruments as there is in some of these risky instruments, and in some cases more so. Um, you know, so bonds have continued to, to take in the majority of, of flow. Um, and you now have interest, real interest rates that are, um, well, this entire time real interest rates have been negative. They've now gone back to more uh, zero. But as the economy continues to normalize, um, that real interest rate is, need, is going to need to, to be positive, um, and that means rates are going to go up, and that typically hits, you know, bond prices and long-duration assets. So you have long-duration assets that will suffer as the economic normalization occurs. And I think, you know, in some ways it's like a frog that, you know, boils, uh, gets boiled um, as the heat right. gets turned up. You don't really recognize the environment's improving because really I think as an industry, investors have called for, you know, rising interest rates for five years and nothing has really happened. I mean, you can say now we're 100 basis points sort of off the bottom in terms of short rates. And even the 10-year is, is, you know, 125 basis points off its lows. So that is the type of sort of orderly, renorm, you know, renormalization that we're seeing in interest rate markets that I think the Fed is, is looking to engineer um, so they don't spook the market. And, um, and, and frankly, there's still a lot of debt out there. So, you know, we can't tolerate interest rates, and I could say this in Canada, of, you know, 4% overnight rates or even 3% overnight interest rates. I think right. it's a very different situation because of the debt load. So, um, but that, um, you know, that, that move towards normalization means that a lot of these economies are at capacity or even operating above capacity, so above their speed limits. And that means that, that the regime, you know, policy has to change. And, and where volatility picks up is it's very hard for central banks to think historically to sort of thread the needle and to engineer a soft landing as they get into a new, um, you know, regime for monetary policy. And that's where the economic uncertainty picks up and the financial market uncertainty picks up, which gets expressed through uh, volatility. So that's you know, that's kind of why we believe volatility picks up next year because we're finally seeing a regime switch towards, you know, tighter monetary policy than looser. Right, and the transition to tighter should result in volatility. Exactly. How much of a put in the bond market do you see in terms of uh, a risk-off situation occurring is there, like, you know, the strange thing is that while, you know, you mentioned earlier that over the last five years there was an expectation that yields would climb, and they've really maintained a very sort of steady level pass all the way through, and it seems to be, and there's, there's a lot of talk that it is being supported by uh, the risk-off crowd, those investors who are, Either you either see the uh, duration instruments as as a um, safe haven versus uh, equities in in the uh, in the face of a downturn. So they've been gradually positioning more and more uh, into um, uh, dura duration instruments, and that has kept yields down. 
Um, how much of that is is there is there any truth in that, and 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 how much how much of a factor is that in terms of of um, positioning your portfolios, if at all? Yeah, sure. No, great, uh, great point. I, I do think that evidence suggests that investors did have a long memory about the scars of 2008 because when we look at mutual fund flows, so this doesn't include the impact of ETFs, and clearly. A lot of people have sold equity mutual funds to buy ETFs because right. um, performance has been better. It's liquid. Um, you know, it's been a challenging environment for, for for stock managers to beat indices. So there's clearly some of that. But even within, you know, mutual funds, um, you would expect that to be happening on the fixed income side as with the equity side. And what we've observed is that there have been, you know, really no flows into equities since the, the financial crisis, and there continues to be healthy flows into the bond market, at least on the mutual fund side. So I think what you say about investors and risk-off is true. It isn't the whole story, but I would say that, in part, that's why we're going to see, uh, in all likelihood, the longest economic cycle on record, because it's been a very measured recovery, both in terms of economics, but also in terms of investor behavior. You haven't seen... Um, you know, the, the greed, uh, is, exhibit itself among investors as you would typically see as a, as a cycle, uh, gets older. Um, so the excesses in investor leverage and, and behavior, um, I think have been very tempered this time in part because of the, you know, you know, again, the scars of 2008. People have these memories about, you know, how stock markets were down 40, 50, 60% depending on, on your local market. So there has been a lot more trepidation, I think, in, in investing in risky assets, um, you know, or overdoing it. There has been flows into ETFs. There's, there's no doubt. So I wouldn't say that people are absent. But I do think that that has in part held down interest rates. But it's not just them. The other, So I would call that kind of a technical or a behavioral bid to the bond market. Uh, and, in fact, not seeing real big negative returns on bonds, even if rates have really gone down uh, in terms of return, it's still been mostly positive. But on top of that, you've had central banks doing the same thing, maybe further up the yield curve. But there's this huge technical um, situation where you have a lot of demand for paper, for for bond markets, for credit products, but also government bonds. So that combined effect, I think, has meant there has been a huge demand for, um, you know, risk-off assets um, uh, that, you know, it, that has, you know, that has in part muted um, the rise in interest rates that everyone would have expected with all this liquidity. Uh, but there's also been a fundamental reason. So, you know, inflation, frankly, is 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 missing. It's it's not. Um, you know, the Phillips curve is, is um, you know, in doubt. Even policymakers are saying we're not right. sure why, you know, with unemployment that's, you know, maybe 50 basis points or half a percent below the natural rate of unemployment that we're not seeing the wage growth that we typically would. So there's a fundamental reason behind low yields as well. Clearly there's that technical component, but there's the fundamental component, which really is this lack of inflation. But I do see that as as and this is probably consensus at this point that that people expect, you know, inflation um, to to perk up a little bit more next year just from base effects. Um, you know, oil has, has sort of doubled off the bottom. Um, you know, foodstuffs, other things are, are definitely going up. 
Um, we are seeing a bit more wage pressure. So, um, you know, all, you're correct around, you know, the technical aspect, both from individual retail investors and central banks buying the bond market heavily, but, but it also is a fundamental, there is a fundamental piece around, you know, the lack of inflation that's allowed investors to become very complacent in bond assets. They haven't seen an inflation cycle where that fixed coupon can really, you know, hurt them um, in terms of, in real terms, where, you know, they're they're actually earning a negative real rate of return, <laughs> which they have for a lot of this cycle. And I think that goes to, you know, the demand for safe instruments, because it's not like they've earned a real, even though there hasn't been a lot of inflation, rates are so low that there really has been no real yield to speak of. But when you see you know, potentially, you know, two, three percent nominal losses in in bond markets as rates continue to go up. Maybe you see a a reaction for the re, the average retail investor out of those instruments. Given you know these these central banks are also moving the same way in terms of dumping their bond portfolios. So we we definitely worry about um, you know uh, you know some some spike uh, in 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 rates, but. You know, having said all that, I think central banks are on the case. They understand and they're trying to be clear that, you know, the rate cycle is likely, let's say, in the U.S. only to go up another 100 basis points, maybe 125 basis points, because the neutral rate, the rate that sort of, you know, equates demand with supply in the labor market and is a neutral setting for monetary policy is a lot lower than it used to be. Um, so I think, you know, that kind of transparency and forward guidance is, is keeping you know, the the rise in interest rates uh orderly and, and not chaotic, which is clearly what we need, I think, from a macro perspective. Is there any connection uh between volatility and inflation today? Yeah, I, I I think so. I think we would argue that, you know, the fact that central banks are acting as they have done. We've had a deep economic crisis in two thousand and eight. Um, and so instead of a V-shaped recovery, it's been a very U-shaped recovery. So it's been long and lean and, you know, an absent of excesses. I mean, we're in Canada here, so obviously we see some excesses maybe in the housing market. But from a global perspective, you know, we're not seeing CapEx, um, you know, flood the market. We're not seeing a whole bunch of excess capacity get added that would – normally enhance the business cycle and make it, um, you know, stronger. I think we've seen the opposite. I mean, invest corporates have returned cash to shareholders. They've done share buybacks. They're focusing on the shareholder. There hasn't been a lot of excesses. Um, you know, there has been deleveraging on the part of U.S. consumers, certainly, um, not on the part of Chinese consumers, but there's pockets around the world where, you know, people haven't, they've actually retrenched a little bit. And what that means to us is a longer cycle, which I think has led to inflation being lower, which, you know, means lower inflation and, and steady economic growth has led to lower volatility. So I agree with you. If you see inflation pick up next year and it's a little bit ahead of expectations, I think the way that plays out is, is more volatility in asset markets because they worry that all of this excess liquidity is finally, you know, igniting the tinder, um, you know, on the fire. And and all of a sudden the economic uncertainty picks up and, and so will the financial market volatility um, because of that uncertainty. It's been a very certain world 
uh, in the sense that inflation has, has not uh, picked up. Growth has been steady, not, you know, again, so we've, so if you really look at sort of um, a growth, uh, you know, global growth relative to trend, we have just steadily been growing back towards trend in a very uh, deliberate way. It hasn't been a V-shaped recovery. It's just been taking out this excess capacity that we lost in 2008 in a very steady way. But we're now getting to the point where we're, we're growing at sort of the global speed limit and policy settings will have to change. And I think that is down to steady growth. It is down to inflation being absent. Um, low economic volatility means low financial market volatility. And um, because you know, we would see 2018 and into 2019 that, that um, you know, lack of economic volatility um, picking up. So, i.e., low economic volatility begins to, to, to seed to, let's say, moderate economic volatility. The financial market volatility will follow. So, I think you're right. There is a correlation between low inflation and low, volat low financial market volatility. And think about it. the first seven years we were dealing de with deflation concerns. So that's right. where that's why bond yields were low um, because even at one percent with with a bit of outright deflation, you still had a real return. I, I would say in the last eighteen months we conquered that fear of deflation. Um, so now we're in a lowflation environment, but not a inflationary environment. So we 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 aren't going to be Japan in the last two decades where they had year-on-year -year price falls. But nor were we back in the late 80s where you were having inflation escalate. So that's why people talked about sort of the Goldilocks environment for um, financial markets. You had no deflation, no significant inflation, just positive, um, you know, price uh, gains that were fairly predictable. Below target, certainly, but, but pretty predictable. Um, so I just wanted to kind of trace, you know, that history of inflation because I now think that we're at risk of inflation now getting back to target, maybe maybe next year uh, and into the next year. So policy settings have to adjust. So we've conquered deflation, but I think now our next enemy at some point will be, um, you know, modest inflation and policy settings, you know, have to change. This, this is as the, as the uh, central banks um, retrace. Yes, as they as, as they pull back on the accommodative stance, as they tighten. As they should. I think we should be all thrilled that they're doing so. I know some people are saying, "Oh no, the liquidity party is over." And but you know, if we had zero percent sort of interest rate settings for ten years and we couldn't engineer inflation or above trend growth, we should all be very very afraid. Um, so I think. It's actually a very healthy sign. Even if returns are lower, let's say, in 2018 than they were in 2017, I think it's a much healthier. For nine years, we were pouring, you know, to use my fire example, you know, kerosene without a, without a spark. So we're just flooding, flooding the market with, with, you know, with liquidity. Now, fortunately, a lot of that has dried up, but maybe now we have some embers and we don't necessarily see need the same um, you know, accommodation to uh, to get a fire going. When you think about how structurally engineered, you know, the economy and the markets have been for the last uh, almost a decade, it's 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 kind of weird. Almost, it's it's almost uh, it almost feels utopian. We've been you know we've been in this shaped world 
everything is being shaped for us. Everything, you know, inflation is being controlled. Interest rates are being kept low. Um, and at the same time, you know, what, what you were saying about CapEx, for example, is that even though these conditions have been created for, you know, for uh, financial markets, for the corporate world, managers are still very careful. They're very cautious about capital expenditure. They're very careful about spending yep. spending on expansion, and they're more more concerned about glad-handing investors with with buybacks and 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 uh, structured earnings. Uh, structured earnings growth it's been it's almost very managed yeah extremely everything is very managed i think that's a good word yeah so so as as they uh let go of this management a little bit that's where that's where some of the uncertainty creeps back into the market about how it will unfold or where it will lead that's a great summary, and I think that's exactly where we are. So uh, my big question is, you know, central banks, for the most part, have been vilified, I, I would say is not too strong a word during this cycle, about how, you know, they've distorted, you know, the, the, the rate of return and, and capital and cost of capital. Like, if we go back, if you think about Austrian economists, whenever you have excesses or if you have a crisis like you had in 2008, the market will take care of it. So you let everything crash and then you kind of build it up again in, in a new, better form. We obviously didn't do that. I mean, we, we were, were in this giant monetary experiment. But, I mean, I wonder where what we'll do when we write on this period, say, in 10 years. You know, did they actually do some good by not letting us go off a cliff? Or were, as interest rates rose, were, you know, there's some excesses that we didn't see and bubbles growing, whether it's Bitcoin, whether it's, you know, that, that will be enough to sort of take down the economic. Like, we're going to have a normal economic cycle. But let's just say we have a garden variety recession, global recession, let's say, in 2019. That would be a pretty good scenario, I think, for this 12 years of very managed interest rates, uh, economy, prices, everything. I think central banks would come away with that with a feather in their cap. And, and I think that that, that sort of uh, pendulum has swung from these guys and gals don't know what they're doing, and this is a huge experiment that's going to blow up, to people saying, I see light at the end of the tunnel, and I see how maybe this could work. Um, so I definitely think there's been a sentiment shift around this big experiment that, that you talked about. Now, as, as a uh, as fund managers, Stephen, are you like we've talked about volatility and the return of volatility, or the expectation that volatility will return? You're actually looking forward to it. I, I think it will be better for for active managers. So yes, as an active manager, if I was managing you know an ETF portfolio, I would I would probably have concerns about a changing regime because I think. You know, a lot of what's worked over the last few years has been um, because of stock correlations, sector correlations, even cross-country correlations, and maybe there's a good way to segue to the dispersion. Um, you know, high correlations have made it very, very tricky for uh, active managers to perform their benchmarks. So I think a return of volatility allows, you know, investors that are more discerning to excel in this environment, meaning, you know, there are some sectors and stocks that because they don't pay a dividend 
or because they don't have the right cash flow and can't be considered a bond proxy are absolutely being ignored by investors who want, you know, yield to compete, you know, where they used to buy a Government of Canada bond at 5%, they're now in a high-yield bond at 5%, and they're now actually thinking, well, where can I get sort of 5% dividend yield on a stock? Now, clearly, those are dramatically different risk profile investments. Um, so I think there's probably a lot of weak hands in trades that, you know, are not going to work out very well as interest rates go higher. And I would think that us as an active manager and a lot of the underlying managers we use hopefully are not in some of those crowded trades that, you know, maybe have a very asymmetric profile as, let's say, in the economy recovers and interest rates do better. Um, just just as an example, I mean, we might have had a dress rehearsal for that in 2013. You remember when Bernanke, um, you know, talked about tapering. I mean, you saw parts, defensive parts of the market that maybe pay dividends or have a very low historical beta to the broader market actually underperform the cyclical areas because of the huge premium and investor sentiment uh, on the positive side around these names. Um, so, again, I think – you know, your point's bang on. I think, uh, you know, more volatility actually um, creates more opportunities for an active manager. Um, and in particular, we're looking for that, um, you know, a bit more of a, a rotation, whether it be in sectors and also uh, country or regional leadership. I mean, for the most part, it's been, you know, with the exception of Japan, which has outperformed the U.S., I mean, it's been mostly a a U.S.-dominated bull market with a lot of other markets kind of trailing behind, Canada included, emerging markets, Europe, you name it. Um, so, you know, we're looking for a bit, bit more broadening uh, before the end of this current cycle into some of those areas that have lagged. And, and the same could be said around growth value uh, or individual sectors. I mean, certainly energy dynamics have changed with shale, but energy has been in a horrible sector over the last year. Um, and a lot of the economically sensitive sectors like, um, you know, materials, um, you know, financials have, have actually bounced. And obviously technology has been wonderful too. Right. But maybe you see a broadening in leadership both at the sector and the country level that allows active managers to uh, to do a little bit better in this next environment. Stephen, what are your thoughts on the argument that low dispersion across index constituents are making active investing harder? I agree with that. And I think, um, you know, the low economic volatility, the focus on cash flow, um, you know, winners, you know, like the FANG stocks, et cetera, those have all been, you know, no one's pushed back on those on those sort of, um, you know, near universal beliefs. Uh, and I think with the low economic volatility, um, you know, that's just got pushed to its natural conclusion, which is, you know, not a lot of dispersion. Momentum trades working very, very well. Um, but we have seen a bit of a crack in that over the last year. I just have some stats. So, you know, people were very focused on minimum volatility uh, and and quality, uh, I would say, and defensive sectors over the last, you know, five, six, seven years. We're starting to see um, that change a little bit. So value, which is economic sensitivity, is still a laggard, but it's done a little bit better. You know, something like financials. You know, a good example, you were talking about, you know, the classics, or I was talking about the, the classic cycle. 
Yeah, I think financials are normally an early to mid-stage, you know, winner. But in this environment with the yield curve as distorted as it is, uh, with companies being cash flow rich and not investing in CapEx um, because they're just paying, you know, paying money to shareholders, you know, banks have really struggled. Uh, and financials in general. Um, but I think that is changing. We're starting to see um, better credit growth, better uh, net interest margins, even with a flat yield curve. That means that financials this time around may be a late cycle phenomenon. So again, I think the broadening in economic activity uh, and the renormalization with inflation going up, maybe interest rates going up, will cause you know different sector performance, different factor performance, and, and when you get right down to it, different individual stock performance. So the answer to your question, absolutely the low economic volatility and, and kind of the low financial market volatility has caused investors to crowd in the same sort of areas, which has been high cash flow type businesses and pay really significant multiples for them because, you know, that's their replacement for their bond portfolio where they're not necessarily getting, um, you know, the return that they want. Um, and that's a very, you know, I think in some ways that's a very crowded trade, but as you see CapEx maybe pick up, and all of this, by the way, has led to a very low productivity uh, environment. So you've heard the Fed kind of scratch their heads around low productivity. Um, I think that that is also related to this. If you're not investing in plant and equipment and software and training and, cap, you know, some of the things that are associated with cap, CapEx, um, you you know we shouldn't be surprised that that at the late stage of this cycle that we're not seeing this the, the type of productivity gains, which means I mean the only way to grow your economy is through growth of the labor force and productivity. A lot of you know the demographics are quite bad in the West. Uh, in the U.S., maybe getting worse with you know more immigra- you know less immigration, let's say. Um, mm-hmm. So so all of these economies probably have lower trend growth because of this fall in productivity. So everyone's trying to figure out how do we improve productivity. I think it is related to CapEx. But all of that to say that, yes, I think it's related to cross-correlations and really tied to the very steady economic growth that we've had that's been unexciting but no inflation. Um, And if you get more dispersion, that's exactly what I'm talking about. You know, correlations are falling. Uh, and I think you see businesses and sectors that maybe were left for dead um, get re-rated. Um, so their valuation gets pushed up. Because the other thing I would say, a lot of these sectors that are, quote, unquote, bond proxies, they have really not very good fundamentals. So it's one thing to say, okay, in technology, a lot of these companies are actually growing earnings, getting into new businesses, you know, new cash flow streams, and that's all great. You know, what should be the multiple for Netflix or, or Google or Fang? We have, you know, individual stock markers, you know, stock pickers that are much more attuned to, to making that investment. But you definitely have other sectors like staples where, you know, maybe the business is growing 1% to 2%, you know, less than the nominal economy, and they still have really significant uh, expectations or valuations because they are the right type of stock for this economic environment, even if their own underlying businesses aren't necessarily that exciting. And I think that, you know, feeds into those, um, you know, lack of dis- into that lack of dispersion that you talked about. So I think the, the, the cure-all to this is an uptick in economic activity that causes, you know, a broadening in, in sector 
factor, and then underlying stock participation because the economy uh, has upshifted. And I think that'll be a better environment for active managers. Now, in your um, in your investment strategy, where do you see uh, more exciting opportunities for return right now? So, yeah, to, to tie back to the portfolios, and a lot of themes will will probably fit, um, you know, kind of the narrative. You know, we're looking for markets sort of outside the U.S. to lead. Um, you know, in terms of, um, let's say, stock markets first. Well, first of all, at the asset mix level, we still think the cycle continues for at least another 12 to 18 months, which means you still need to be, even if volatility picks up, you still need to be um, slightly overweighted in risk assets. So we're overweight equities. Uh, we've reduced our credit, but are still probably overweight credit versus benchmarks, meaning corporate and high-yield bonds. We're still a bit overweight because we think we'll get hurt on duration, i.e. government bonds that don't, uh, really offer very much return. In fact, we would expect negative return over the next 6 to 12 months as rates go up. So from an asset mix perspective, still favoring, you know, riskier assets, in particular stocks. Um, you know, within stocks, let's say, for example, you know, we're favoring markets that have lower valuations. So um, because of the focus on the U.S., because, you know, maybe in part they have a monopoly on all the great tech names globally, um, you've seen a really significant flow into uh, the U.S. I think part of that is because of low beta. Part of that is because of these, you know, um, new global winners in terms of cloud, but also some of the other technology uh, names that have worked. But as you get a broadening uh, of economic activity to Europe, to Japan, which is on fire, I mean, Japan has had the best growth that it's had in 26 years. It looks to be emerging from, you know, the lost decades. And it's not priced for that. So it's still priced for, you know, lethargy, deflation, no real growth, not going anywhere. Um, so there's still value opportunities, I think, um, we think, outside of the U.S. Um, so emerging markets fits that bill. Um, you know, Japan certainly fits that bill. We're a bit mixed on Europe. It's had a good run. Um, but in most cases, you have better earnings growth at lower valuation. So if you're thinking about where you want to place your your wagers, um, you know, as I said, stocks are driven by valuation. So, you know, can the PE go from 15 to 18? Or is the PE at 21 maybe trending down to 19, as, as may be the case in the U.S.? Um, right. So international markets, including Canada, have that advantage of a lower valuation. On top of the fact they have more gearing to a improving global uh, economy. So you have earnings growth that should be higher. Now, notwithstanding, I think the U.S. is fine. I think the U.S., you know, with this tax reform bill is going to, and that wasn't priced, so they're going to get a one-time sort of bump in earnings uh, as a result of the, the, the lower tax rate that is absolutely going to help them. But when you think about gearing to faster or, or earnings growth or operating leverage to faster global growth, it typically isn't the U.S. Uh, it's markets like um, Europe, uh, it's Japan, it's emerging markets, and even Canada. So, so regionally speaking, we're we're more inclined to be uh, outside of the U.S. than than within the U.S. But as I said, the tax package is very good for the U.S. So we like equities all over. We just think that maybe you get, you know, mid-teen returns out of some of the markets that I mentioned versus, you know, low double digits in the U.S. It's just a matter of relative returns. Stocks look good to us overall. 
but you, because of that dual tailwind of both valuation and better earnings, you, you probably do better outside the U.S. So are you still, are you still expecting, um, in the U.S. Uh, in particular, are you still expecting low double-digit returns from the market? That's kind of our thesis. I mean, I think it would have been lower than that, absent the tax package, because again, if volatility picks up, you can't expect the, the you know the PE to go up a whole lot. So that's kind of our base case. But you've had this you know one-time boom in profits, which makes you know because of this, well, if the tax cap gets enacted, as I think they're voting today, even that's going to you know drop the corporate rate to 20%. That could be as much as 10 or 12 dollars per share. Um, more on the S&P, so, and the price hasn't moved, so that just lowers the valuation. Um, or the valuation multiple expands a little bit, but the bottom line is, you know, this is very positive for the U.S., but I think what's positive for the U.S. is positive for global growth actually helps some of the markets outside. You know, if you look at sectors, you know, I think we're, we're definitely sniffing around value. We've added back to value positions. Value right now means financials and energy. I think we like financials over energy because of the changing dynamics in energy. But, you know, I don't think we'd be considering going, you know, massively overweight technology or some of the consumer names that have done really well over the last six, seven years because they've been bond proxies, as I mentioned, high valuation with bad fundamentals in a lot of these areas. Right. Um, so I think we're looking for a little bit more economic sensitivity because the cycle is picking up. So normally that means industrials, materials, energy, and this time around financials. So financials, as I said, tends to be earlier cycle, but because of that yield curve that has been kind of in place because of individual investors but also central banks, I think financials actually this time around are a late cycle performer. So, you know, I talked about the geographic. I also think, you know, you have to look at sort of the sector mix because actually over the last year, I'm just looking at some numbers here. Um, the dispersion, well, I can go year to date. The dispersion so far this year between the major regions that we look at. So we look at Canada, the U.S., Eurozone, the U.K., Japan, PACX Japan, and emerging markets. The dispersion between the top and bottom market in local return is 20%. So Canada's the worst, EMs are the best in local terms, 20% spread. If I look at best and worst performing sectors year-to-date, I have a spread of minus 0.5, so actually outright losses in energy, to 40% in technology. So it's actually twi twice the dispersion within sectors than it is across markets. And I think that shows you that you can't just think about, you know, geographic, um, you know, tactical asset allocation by geography. You also have to think about, you know, wh where are the sector opportunities. And that, that opportunity, or sorry, the, the best performer was tech, obviously. I don't know if I mentioned that. So you have energy that's flat, you have tech up 40%. Whereas in, you know, in terms of regions, you have Canada up 8 and emerging markets are up 27, so like 19, 20%. Um, so I think we are looking for opportunities with managers that ha that give us some exposure to to first of all value, but also economic, which is largely in economically sensitive sectors. So I don't think we'd want to be underweight technology, but we're probably more neutral. I think we're seriously thinking about overweighting energy at some point. We're already overweight financials uh, and overweight industrials as well. 
So, so our economic, you know, we're, we're positioning a little bit more towards economic sensitivity um, given our view of 2018. This is a, yeah, this is this is in keeping with your your thesis that volatility yeah. will will return. Yeah, great. Well, Stephen, thank you very much. I think I've thank you. It's great your time. Yeah, it's been a pleasure talking with you today, and um, thank you very much. Thank you, Pierre.